Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Command Space. I'm your host, Mike Hurley, and this is a show on the glorious 5x5 podcasting network, and I am joined by a 5x5 veteran today, and that is the one and only Christina Warren. Hi, Christina. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing excellent, thank you. You see, you you uh, you've had a you you used to have a show on Five by Five many many moons ago with Mr. Benjamin. Yes, I did. It was called Briefly Awesome, and and it was briefly awesome. It was great. And unfortunately, when I moved to New York, it was just too hard to kind of keep the show going. And then Mike, uh, not Mike, uh, Dan moved to uh, Austin and. Uh, but it was a great show, and I really liked it. And it's podcasting is one of those things I really miss. I wish that I was able to do it more frequently because it's there's just something really great about it. I think. Well, I love it, <laughs> <laughs> and you're very good at it. I, I, I really like Manspace, so I'm really glad. I was really honored when you asked me to be on because this is great. Thank you so much. So, if if you listen to the show, then you'll be familiar with my next question, Christina Warren. What do you like to be known for? I like to be known for being nerdy uh, about pop culture and about tech. It's nice and concise. <laughs> so, Christina, you know, I think people will know you as a as a writer at Mashable, but I'm sure that wasn't the the, the th- your initial dream when you were studying or whatever, because I guess Mashable didn't exist. So, where does your <laughs> where does your love for for gadgets and technology and stuff like that come from? Have you always been a geek because it's always been a thing for you it has i mean i guess i've always been interested in technology and gadgets even going back to you know video games when i was uh, very young i always loved games and i always loved movies and was interested in kind of the latest and greatest um stuff i used to obsess over video game magazines as a kid uh, but it wasn't until i was i was 12 and i was in a really bad bike accident and um it was right before the summer right right at the end of the school year and and I went straight into a tree and managed to bust my face up pretty terribly. And on the way uh, back from the hospital, on the way to the, uh, the pharmacy, the grocery store where I was getting medication and stuff because, you know, I just busted my face up, um, my mom said, okay, well, you can pick out whatever magazines you want. And I already read all the latest, you know, teen magazines and those teen and 17 and, um, you know, teen beat and all that stuff. And, um, one of my summer goals that year was to be a was to learn more about computers. I'd already kind of decided that I was going to learn more about computers, and so I picked up two copies of two different computer magazines. One was a PC Mac, and one was a PC World. And it's actually funny because I was able to locate what exact issue of PC Mag it was because I remembered something about the cover story. And it turns out that my the guy who's now my editor in chief, my boss. Uh, was a contributor to that issue, so wow. which is just kind of a yeah, right? That's so crazy, it's sort of, you know, right? So something that from 1995, you know, ended up being um, a, a guy that wrote in that issue is uh, that was kind of a catalyst to me getting involved with everything in tech is now my boss, which is what a small world, right? So that summer, you know, I remember I picked up these these two magazines and uh, the, the PC Mag, something about a you know OS two was was on the cover and it was you know is is the next version of OS two warp is it going to be enough to take on you know Windows and this was before Windows ninety five had been released and there was kind of a lot of stuff um, going on and um, everything in it was Greek to me 
like I, I totally had no idea what anything in the in the what any of the terms are were what anything meant and my my own experience with computers at that point was pretty limited to you know Macs and um, you know Apple IIs and that sort of thing. But by the end of the summer, um, I knew. I mean, I I, I had it nailed. I I had a, a tremendous amount of knowledge just about basic PC stuff and DOS stuff and, and, and Mac stuff and the kind of latest happenings in the news space. And, and this was before the World Wide Web was really popular. And uh, so most of my research, most of my learning came from books and from magazines. But when I started school, you know, a couple months later, um, I, I was already proficient enough to be able to be uh, one of a of the computer um, assistants in, in the school computer lab. And I, I never stopped reading. I never stopped learning. And when we got on the Internet, um, I guess it was, it was later that year, I built my first website in, in 96. And uh, then I joined GeoCities later in 96 and, and just continued to uh, write about uh, technology and, and, and experiment with building websites. And it just became a passion of mine. Um, I, uh, I actually, it's, it's funny if I can, I found archives of my uh, old GeoCity site where I have, you know, reviews about software programs and about different, um, you know, uh, tips and tricks, you know, how to Windows 95 and 98 tip of the day section for a long time. And uh, I would answer, uh, I was basically free tech support for GeoCities. I would basically answer people's questions about the HTML and that sort of thing. And so it's actually funny that what my career is now is not that different from stuff I was doing for free, you know, as a teenager. Um, but I actually went to school, I actually went to film school, I actually thought that I would be working in the film industry. Um, and for a long time it was always kind of a, a conflict with me. I thought, do I want to be involved in technology or do I want to be involved in the film industry? And what ended up happening uh, was that during my senior year of college, I was a frequent commenter on um, the music editor for USA Today's uh, American Idol blog and his music blog. and. He ended up reaching out to me and saying, you know, we're looking to add a younger voice to our um, American Idol coverage in the paper, and we would like you to be a contributor. So I contributed uh, weekly to the paper as well as a, a longer column online um, for during the um, seventh season, or, or excuse me, the sixth season of American Idol. And that was my first professional writing job. I'd been writing at that point uh, on the web and kind of been an early adopter for many years. But that was my first professional writing job. And, and that sort of led me to the world, uh, the broader world of, of, of blogs. And uh, after my USA Today experience, I started writing for Weblog Zinc for both uh, the unofficial Apple Weblog and for Download Squad. And then later for a, a style blog called Stylist. Um, and uh, after two years of that, uh, Mashable approached me and, and I joined them uh, and made it my full-time career. But... Um, I guess to kind of make a long story short, I mean, I've been writing, I guess, for as long as I can remember, but it was always sort of a question in my mind, would I be writing uh, screenplays or would I be working, you know, in a film studio in that sort of environment or would I be doing something maybe more as a developer focused uh, around the web? And uh, my career as, you know, a technology journalist just kind of um, happened by happenstance, but at the same time, if I look back at my own personal history with how I've interacted on the on the net and always been an early adopter and always been someone who's uh, just been interested in the latest and greatest things and the fact that I was writing tutorials and, and tips and reviews as a teenager, it actually kind of makes a lot of sense, I guess, that, that I'm doing what I do now because a lot of what I do now is really just an extension of what I've been doing for more than half my life. I just find it such an interesting story that this random happenstance of you picking up a magazine for something that you had a, 
you know a slight interest in you know at the time that you you know you you'd at least decided that you wanted to look into computers more which was probably quite a a common thing um, yeah. at that point anyway but you doing that and and picking up a PC magazine and now you know you're writing for one of the larger properties on web that on the web that covers this stuff it's just such an interesting um arc and it's actually really great that you can remember that because you i i would say that probably most people don't necessarily remember or can pinpoint the time that they became specifically interested in something that then became a bigger thing for them so i guess you're quite lucky in that that you can also as well find the magazine you know you know what issue yeah. it is no i i totally and and i think that I, that's I always try to remember that if it makes any sense because um, first and foremost, I think one of the reasons that um, I do what I do is, is fundamentally because I love it. You know, if I didn't enjoy what I, the subject that I was writing about, I wouldn't write about it. Uh, it. It just wouldn't be one of those things where regardless of the money, I, I wouldn't do it. And so I always kind of think of myself as, you know, I was kind of a, a, a fan-churned journalist. You know, there are people that I've looked up to and people that, you know, have been icons of mine as, as writing. Colleagues, you know, people who um, I, I then see at, at events and, and and friends with, which is really weird and really bizarre. You know, that it's like, oh, I've been you know reading you for however long. You know, especially with kind of the blog stuff. You know, people who literally, um, you know, come of age, you know, reading, and then you're in the same space with them. It's kind of a bizarre thing. Dan Benjamin was like that. You know, I've been a, a big reader of his and, and listener to his early podcast, even pre, you know, five by five. And he and I met in 2009. Um, I mean, I was well aware of who he was, and it was just like a, a bizarre thing for me that I was like, oh, my God, you know, like I'm friends with Dan Benjamin, you know, somebody that I've uh, looked up to. Um, but I think that I think that's one of the things I always try to keep in mind is, you know, where things started for me because I don't, I don't want to say it informs a ton of my writing, but I try to be aware of it because I think it's important just because I, I like to think that, hey, there might be some other kid out there who this is how they're discovering that they're really interested in something is by reading stuff that other people write and who knows maybe that stuff could be mine um so you know you kind of want i kind of want to always be aware of that um and try to give it my best and try to you know be as as fair and as as interesting as possible because i know the impact that technology journalism had on my life you know just from knowing how much everything changed after reading those magazines and just there was something about them that just pulled me in and and it's it's made me who i am today this is just an awesome story. So you working from uh, sort of 2007, 2009 at Webblogs Inc., right? And you were working on, like you yes. said, 2R and Download Squad and stuff. What sort of things were you writing around that around that time? Well, I was, um, I'd been using the Mac at that point for a really long time, but I had, was a recent full-time Mac switcher. So it was one of those situations where I... I Used it extensively in school, especially for editing stuff. But um, I, in college, I was a PC technician, and I had PCs at home, and so I kind of had a dual life. And I'd finally gone full time Mac. So I was writing a lot of Mac stuff. I was uh, then eventually a lot of iOS stuff and iPod stuff, um, but also just about web apps and kind of Web 2.0 culture, different web services, um, you know, things like WordPress, uh, website d- development. And, um, you know, just kind of anything that kind of interested me. Uh, but, but it was a lot of, you know, uh, I guess kind of, you know, it, it was a great introduction to, I guess, the world of, of technology news and, and uh, web publishing because everything moved very fast. But it was also a time before everything had become, I guess, so 
corporatized where, you know, all the major players could actually still be, you know, individuals like me who were getting paid per post and, and, and weren't salaried journalists. And, and, you know, you could still kind of uh, make a name for yourself um, despite not, you know, having kind of a known pedigree or anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was mostly a lot of, a, a lot of Mac stuff, you know, and, and, and a lot of uh, so, some gadgets, but it was mostly Mac and Apple stuff. And I think that's how a lot of people who started following me early on Twitter probably know me as being, you know, kind of an Apple uh, person. But I also wrote about, you know, other web services and, and technologies and, and the then kind of burgeoning Web 2.0 trend. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's that you were in it at the right time. Like Web 2.0 yes. was a massive change in the way that things work online. Obviously, not from a uh, not from a point of necessarily how things were done, but the way that things were looked at and the types of types of web apps starting to appear, which obviously then led to the apps that we have now. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it, and and I think. For me, I was really fortunate that I started professionally blogging at a time when it was really a perfect time to kind of get involved with it. Uh, I would say probably 2006, 2007, people that started then, um, uh, I mean, maybe even as early as 2005, you know, uh, there's some people who obviously started earlier who have made big names for themselves, but I kind of came in it at the right time where blogs were starting to become a known media thing. People knew what they were, but it was before every existing media company had shifted uh, to the web and and thus you had a lot bigger competition. It was before Huffington Post was this huge entity. It was before uh, companies such as Mashable became what Mashable has become. And so if you were a writer trying to start out um, and you didn't go to journalism school, which which I didn't, uh, and and frankly, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that I saved the money. Hmm. Uh, I'm not. I'm, I'm not going to say that that I would say for other people not to go there, but I. It wasn't necessary for me, and it hasn't been anything that that I needed in my career. I always. I had good writing courses in college. I've always been a very strong writer, but it wasn't one of those things that I felt like, oh, I need to learn about how to how to write for a, a print newspaper because, um, I immediately entered a world where digital was part of the conversation and, and, and was my main publishing medium period. You know, I didn't ever have to worry about the whole, you know, death of the newsroom thing. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I came in at a time where I, I was very fortunate and that it was still, you could still kind of be that nobody knows who you are, but get a job writing for a site that has a large profile and that gets millions of, of readers, um, which is something that I, I can't necessarily say today. I would say that today, if I were to be, you know, trying to start and break into a career in, in uh, tech journalism, it'd be a lot harder yeah. just because the competition is a lot stiffer. So I was very fortunate that for whatever reason, I was able to just kind of get in at the right time. Um, and I was also able to get in, I think, when, when Twitter, you know, was just really starting to take off. And, and I made a, a name for myself on, on Twitter rather quickly when it was still small enough that uh, um, it wasn't a problem to, you, it, well, not that it wasn't a problem, that you were had the ability to stand out more. Whereas now, you know, everyone's on Twitter and it's hard to build a profile that way. So I was, I was very fortunate, I think, just in the timing of how my career started, frankly. Um, and and I'm very cognizant of that. And, and it's it's funny that when there are a lot of discussions uh, on other sites and, and kind of other mediums about the changing nature of digital publishing and, and online journalism and how people are getting started, you know, I'm always cognizant of just how lucky I was with the timing. Because if I'd started later, I know that I would have faced a much more difficult battle than I did. And, and as it was, you know, when I joined Weblogs, Inc., it was one of those things where I knew I had a plan in mind. I said, okay, you know, 
whatever they're going to be paying me is not going to be enough for me to make my full-time income. I'm going to have to do other things, and, and I was still finishing school, um, but it will give me exposure. And if my end goal, at that point, I'd kind of decided I wanted my end goal to be to be writing more, whether it was it's about culture or technology. I hadn't really decided, but if my end goal is to get one of those th- one of those jobs, this is a great way for me to get exposure to a very large audience and build a name for myself. And so I did that. And so I, I worked for two years for very little pay, uh, but I was able to build up a, a social profile and a brand for myself. Um, and then it, it paid off, and, and I, I joined Mashable. And I joined Mashable uh, as it was transitioning from kind of its first era into. Uh, kind of its second era, but when I joined, you know, it was it was the company was a couple of years old, but it was still very very green. You know, it was uh, the first time we'd really kind of hired, you know, more than just a couple of full time employees. You know, we we didn't have any offices; we all worked remotely. You know, there were nine of us total. Uh, now there are a hundred of us, wow. uh, and we wow. have two offices, including you know a, a, a large office in New York City where I'm sitting right now. You know, on this podcast and. Um, that's just happened in four years. You know, I joined my, my fourth anniversary at Mashable was on the 24th of August, so just a few days ago. And just to see how much even Mashable has changed in four years is, is unreal. But I, but going back, you know, six years to when I first started in 2007, my goal was always to basically kind of do what I've done. Um, and I got lucky with the timing, and I think I got uh, lucky with some other things that happened. But but I was also, I think, um, I guess, prescient enough to identify certain trends and to know, okay. Twitter is something I can use to help build my brand, and I can kind of, you know, um, by using kind of my what I've always been doing, which is to be kind of quick to join um, networks and be an early adopter and be, you know, kind of outspoken and use the fact that I am female, which, you know, fortunately isn't as much of a of a rarity as it used to be, but is still sort of, you know. a a unique enough sort of thing that you can get attention for it. I mean, it's double standard, but it is what it is. That I could kind of use parts about myself and my personality to become um, more known. I could, you know, make that into a real career. And and it took time, but it paid off. And, uh, you know, I I got lucky that it did, but I'm not going to lie and and say that it was an accident. It was one of those things where I think it it was always my goal. Um, for what happened to happen. Obviously, I think I've been more successful than I ever expected I would be. I certainly didn't expect to be living in New York City and frequently appearing on, you know, TV as, you know, a, a pundit and whatnot. <laughs> and, and like I said, to be at events where I see, you know, heroes of mine. Uh, but the goal was always to take the, you know, uh, paper post blogging thing and segue that into being a full-time career. I think I can totally appreciate the fact, you know, you say that that you are obviously are female and there are times where you're able to use that to make you stand out. Like I use that, the fact that I'm a British person, I target the American market for, with my shows and always have done a lot more than the market in the UK. Um, I've just always focused the content towards the American market. And I feel that that's done a lot of good for me because my voice is more distinctive that way. Um, than it would be if I was targeting the UK market. I would be just another voice. But by focusing on the US market, I'm the British guy, you know. And, right. And, and so that's a, a whether it's a strength or not. It's something that makes it me stand out. So it's it's help. I think has helped me sort of grow this stuff because my voice is more distinctive. When people listen to the show, they won't ever get me. Com- they very very rarely would get me confused with the guest for example and and believe it or not I, I get that a lot that people like that that they can tell 
that there's, you know, I am not the guest. I am clearly <laughs> a different person. No, definitely. I think you're right. I mean, it's one of those things that when we're in, we're in, and especially as media has become so much more democratized, which is awesome and which is great, but it becomes more difficult to stand out, right? So anything you have that makes you unique in the space that you're in, you should take advantage of. And, you know, for you, it's targeting America where everyone with British accent sounds smart and, and exotic to us. <laughs> it doesn't matter, you know, what region you're from. And, and I, I, I talked to my, my friends uh, from from the UK who often talk about, oh, you know, I'm not even from the good part. You know, I've got the uh, the bad accent. I'm like, no, but to us, you sound like yeah. a freaking genius. We are, all are just so enamored with it. Um, that you're right. You know, it, it gives you that... Uh, it's one more thing where people won't forget you. They're like, okay, well, he's the British guy, and or you know, I'm I'm the I'm the girl, and that's great. Whatever you got, we're working with it. So I want to take a quick break, um, and then I want to talk to you about about Mashable and your time there. Sure. So this episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it really easy to create your own website, blog, portfolio, or even an online store or site for your business. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code TALLYHO8. Squarespace are always doing awesome work to keep their platform up to date and adding new things, new designs, new features, and consistently making their support team even stronger and more effective. They have really beautiful designs that you can start any Squarespace site with. They have loads of great style options as well, so you can tweak it to make it your own and create your own space online. You can change colors, you can change fonts, they have Google fonts built in, and they also have Typekit fonts built in as well, so they have some great ones, some fan favorites like Museo and Proxima Nova and things like that, so you can make your your blog look look nice and nice and beautiful on all devices and i say all devices because they have responsive web design built into all of their designs and templates so your site is going to reformat and look fantastic no matter what device people are coming to your website from they have squarespace commerce where you can integrate a online store into any Squarespace site and you can sell physical or digital goods. They have their amazing support team that I mentioned before are award winning and they operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week in case you have any problems or you need any help. Whilst you're going to squarespace.com to sign up for that free trial, check out the videos that they've got on the site there and you can really see how different people are using Squarespace differently to create their own sites online. Squarespace plans start at just $8 a month. The free trial is no obligation, no credit card needed. You'll get a free domain name if you sign up for one of their plans, which are for one year or more. If you sign up for one of their annual plans, a free domain name too. And make sure that you get 10% off and help support this show and all of 5x5 by using the offer code TALLYHO8. That's T-A-L-L-Y-H-O and the number 8. So go check out Squarespace, everything that you need to create an exceptional website. So you mentioned you've been at Mashable for four years and, and you've been writing um, in and around that you know the industry for a while. How did the opportunity to join Mashable come about for you? Well, it was uh, a couple of ways. So I'd met Pete uh, Cashmore, our CEO, um, at South by Southwest, I guess maybe in 2008 or, or, or something, and, and again in 2009. But Mashable actually had a a meetup event in Atlanta where I used to live uh, called Mashlana that they did in conjunction with um, a, a startup called Regator. And my uh, then fiance, now husband, um, and I were friends with the Regator team. And so they invited us to the, to the Mashlana event. And at that event, I met some of the Mashable team members for the first time, including Adam 
Mosro, who is our SVP of, of content and our former editor-in-chief, um, and Sharon Fetter, who used to be our uh, Chief Operating Officer, but at the time, um, she just recently joined uh, Rachel Ray's media company as their Chief Digital Officer, Sharon, um, and a, a couple other people. And so uh, we met, a, I, I met them at the event, and, and we went to live karaoke together, <laughs> and it, which was a lot of fun. It was, it was kind of a rock band, uh, an actual rock band doing backing stuff for, for uh, karaoke, which was kind of cool. And uh, we kept in touch. And what happened is that a woman that I'd uh, known from my time at Weblog Inc., um, Barb uh, uh, Dibwad, who's now actually back at Engadget, she left a company she was at and joined Mashable. And Barb, um, before her her current uh, time at Engadget, she was actually one of their uh, exec, kind of their their executive producers, and she was kind of one of the people behind the scenes who made Engadget tick. And she's a fantastic person, and she. Uh, left her job at uh, a site that she went to after Engadget to, to join Mashable. And it was one of those things where I remember reading that and thinking, you know, if Barb has gone someplace, that speaks really highly of, of them because she's fabulous. And Mashable was looking for new people. And she mentioned my name. And uh, Sharon reached out to me over email and said, I'd like to talk to you about a, a full-time opportunity. And uh, actually, she reached out over Facebook. Hmm. And um, discussions went from there. And, I guess 2009. I guess at the time, Facebook was maybe cooler for that stuff than it is now. I mean, I think that we forget that we all loved Facebook at one point, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's it, totally, exactly. I mean, it's actually really funny to think about because, you know, now I don't even bother to check my Facebook messages. It's just, I get too many and it's too spam-filled. But back then, you know, I would actually be able to, somebody could actually connect with me that way. Um and this was before the social network movie had come out. It was actually when the idea of the Facebook movie was still being laughed at. One of my, yeah. I think my second post at Mashable was kind of defending the movie and saying, hey, actually, you know, I've read a leaked copy of the script. It's, uh, it's pretty good. Um, and my space was still technically bigger, but it was kind of on the decline. But, but, but Facebook was really was kind of up and coming at that point. And so Sharon reached out to me and we talked and it seemed like it would be a good fit. And, and, um, and it was, you know, and so um, it was really just kind of through networking. They'd been my work, you know, obviously they're able to read the things that I'd written and, and looked like, hey, you'd be um, a good fit. And and at the time, you know, um, Mashable covered a lot more kind of, I think at the time when I joined it, it, it the uh, still a guide and it was a, was a major focus and, and since shifted, you know, to being much more about kind of the connected generation and, and connected culture. Um, and, and we cover a bunches of different verticals and we're kind of more of a general news site uh, with a, with a tech and connected focus. Um, but at the time, you know, the focus was definitely on social media and, and it certainly helped that when I was hired, I had 10,000 Twitter followers, which in 2009 was a pretty big deal actually. So, uh, I think that, that that certainly was a was a big reason that they also probably reached out to me. Is they said, okay, they wanted people who had um, a good understanding of of the space that they were covering, and, and frankly, they were you know um, leaders at. So, so at Mashable now, what what is your beat now? What do you cover? 
so I'm our senior tech analyst. So I've gone through, it's funny, I've gone through a number of different kind of phases at Mashable. I started out as a staff writer. I've, I actually, I, I did an Instagram photo of this a couple months ago where I found a bunch of my old Mashable business cards and lined up. Um, and and what I, I want to do kind of a photo montage of kind of my like evolution of Mashable business cards as well as titles. So I started up as a staff writer and I would just write up any general news that, that I would find or be assigned. Um, obviously, you know, uh, with deference to me coming for and, and Mac-related stuff uh, because I had a lot of connections um, and of uh, you know contacts all over that area. Uh, and then I went to becoming our Apple and Dev and Design reporter. And then I uh, created the entertainment channel and I was an entertainment editor. And uh, my ideas for that and how it's kind of evolved uh, were a little bit different, which is fine. I mean that that that's what happens with things. Um, but I, I last uh, last fall, um, I was promoted to uh, my current role, which is senior tech analyst. And so, what that basically means is that I write a lot of our reviews. I do a lot of our thinking pieces, a lot of kind of our deep dive technology pieces. Um, I, I'm less doing, you know, like individual news stories and more kind of big picture things. You know, um, uh, kind of a, a deep look at different topics. Um, you know, and uh, trying to kind of look at trends and analysis of what's happening in, in the tech industry. And I would say that, you know, for me, one of my, my personal favorite focuses is on, on mobile and then also on the on the second screen and uh, kind of with connected entertainment. So there's a lot of stuff happening around the second screen and the way that television is being shaped by technology and, and you know, kind of the shift to digital broadcasting and, and digital streaming versus, you know, pure um, over-the-air or, or broadcast or, or cable stuff. And, and I'm really, really fascinated by a lot of that stuff. So I write a lot of that content, uh, do a lot of our mobile phone reviews. Um, I kind of split that with our, our tech editor, uh, Pete Patchell. And, uh, you know, anything else that kind of strikes my fancy. I, I, I occasionally, you know, we're, we're matched with the sort of places are most organizations where, you know, when breaking news happens, if, if you happen to be the only one who can write about it effectively, you're the one who does it. Like last night, for instance, when... Um, SEA um, hacked um, into the domain registrar for the New York Times and, and Twitter Images and some other companies. You know, I was the only one who had adequate knowledge about how DNS and, um, you know, domain name stuff works. So I, I wrote, you know, that story and kind of followed that. Um, but but in general, my position has evolved from being less of kind of a, a beat reporter into being more of an analyst role where I do, you know, more of our think pieces as well as our reviews. What do you um what, what is it that you love about covering this this new stuff? I guess that some of the second screen stuff maybe takes it a bit back to sort of your first love which is film and things like that. Yeah, no that's exactly it because those are my two big passions, right? Are our movies and technology or, or TV and technology and I love the way that technology has changed the way that content is created, consumed and distributed and you know that was kind of my original mantra for the entertainment channel. And um, it's funny because a lot of it really ends up being more of a business story. But I guess what I like about being able to talk about that stuff and write about that stuff is I feel like I'm in a unique position in that before I was a tech journalist, you know, I thought I was going to be a, um, I was going to work in the film industry. I I'd wanted to be a producer. I wanted to work in the studio system. And so I have a background in how the business works. And I've, I've, I've interned at studios before and I've had, you know, roles kind of in, in that sort of corporate structure. So I I feel like I'm in a unique position where I understand both the perspective and the point of view of what's happening on the studio side, as well as what's ha or on the content side, as well as 
what's happening on the technology side. And most of the time when you see stuff reported, it's from one perspective or the other. It's, it's not with an understanding um, of how both sides are approaching things. And, and I think that, you know, um, like I honestly, I think that's one of the reasons why Google has not, uh, YouTube notwithstanding, um, not had success with their uh, television efforts because I, 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 as a company, I don't think they fundamentally understand content. And it, it's content that ends up making things um, really work rather than just having a great technology idea because you can have the best technology in the world and it doesn't matter. Um, but by the same token, you know, if content companies are too slow to adapt and, uh, you know, um, embrace the technological realities of what's happening, then what, what we saw happen to the music industry could happen to TV or, or to the film industry. And, and that would be terrible um, from a cultural perspective. But it, it becomes, um, I think, really kind of an interest. It, it's kind of a perfect intersection for what my own personal passions are. And, and the space is just so hot with so many companies, you know, come in with new ways to try to essentially even change the tel like television, for instance. Um, most of how the way the second screen is used now is purely as kind of marketing and promotional, and they haven't done anything that innovative with it to date. But I see it as a potential to actually have a whole new storytelling perspective, which could be, you know, if you think about a TV show like Lost, if Lost was made specifically with a second screen component built in, wherein you would have to be using an app and partaking in, um, you know, this, this kind of second screen experience to fully understand the mystery of the island. How cool would that be? How would that, I mean, I, I think that would have been like one of those perfect shows that could have really, that could really benefit from that. And I'm not saying every show needs to have a digital component, but I do think that there is potential for a new um, form of storytelling that becomes kind of a, a hybrid medium unto itself that we haven't even scraped the surface of yet that, that could be really, really compelling. And, you know, just those ideas as well as just the simple fact of, of what, you know, boxes and, and what devices are going to make it easier for us to get our content from all our different sources in one place and, and one easy to do thing, I think is really fascinating. I mean, I think that's why a lot of people are, have high hopes for an Apple television product because we're kind of, I think most consumers kind of live in this world now where we're, we have kind of two brains, whereas you consume a lot of content from digital services like Netflix or YouTube or, or Hulu or Amazon or, or, or Love Film or whatever. But then you also have your traditional television stuff too. And switching between those two spheres is, is still too difficult. And, and finding content that you want to watch when you want to watch it is still not as streamlined as it could be. Ironically, you know, kind of the original leader in, in remaking the television experience, TiVo, um, who you know, they've been missing for a while and they haven't done anything great in a long time. Their, their newly released uh, TiVo Romeo line, um, I, my review for it uh, went up this week, is probably the closest thing I've seen yet that does a really, really good job of, of you know, bringing the best of those worlds in one interface um, together. But I think that there's so much potential just for, you know, kind of these, these converging worlds and, and the impact that the technology specifically is having on just the way um, we get content is is astounding, and, and it's a really it's a really interesting space, and it's some it's you know one of those things I could write about um, forever. You know, I, I could write books about. It. I wish I had time to because it's it's just a topic that I I really am passionate about. So you've mentioned that you've been with Mashable for four years, um, and that the site has really changed and grown a lot. So being a part of it from you know the relatively early days. How do you see this change? Do you, do you see it as like a really positive thing? 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. You know, um, it surprised me how much uh, Mashable has grown. I mean, I think what's basically happened is that, and, and you see the same thing happen with a lot of sites. We went from being a, a, a niche site um, to being much more of kind of a, our goal, I think, is to be much more of a mainstream news site. And um, that's been a really interesting transition. You know, in the early days when we would write about certain topics, like if I would write about a movie or if I would write about, um, you know, a, a, a certain kind of more general news event, people would would attack it. You know, this isn't about social media. You know, why are you writing about this? This isn't about technology. Why are you writing about this? We don't get as much of that anymore. I think people understand that um, the way that we consume news is different. And and I think that's probably uh, been one of the things that, that makes Pete Cashmore, our CEO, you know, the, the creator of Mashable, such a... Uh, he's so young, he's younger than me, and he's incredibly forward-thinking, and he sees kind of the next big thing before almost anyone else, and he you know, tries to make moves to be able to capture that. But I think that what's happened with you know sites like Mashable is that by focusing on being more general news, it wasn't so much that we wanted to get into other people's areas. It's the people come to us first to find out what's happening. You know, um, people are, are getting breaking news on Twitter. People are, are, are getting, um, you know, a lot of their... Um, entertainment content and, and kind of their viral content, you know, on, on things like Reddit. And it makes sense um, that a place that, that you know, the, the concept of a daily newspaper or kind of a general newspaper has kind of disappeared to a certain extent, um, for better or for worse. You know, I, I'm certainly not going to, to argue that, uh, you know, local papers disappearing is a good thing. But um, technology and, 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 you know, social media has become entwined in every single part of our life. And, and what's actually really interesting is that what I noticed very early on with Mashable was not how much we were becoming like more traditional news organizations, but how much more they were becoming like us. And I started noticing that, you know, several years ago when I would watch CNN or, you know, Fox or, you know, um, even the local news, and I would see how many stories they reported on, which were Mashable stories, you know, things like this, you know, new features coming to Twitter or this, you know, security exploit is happening with your phone or this new app is really cool. And that stuff that has become, you know, what the mainstream is doing. And it becomes one of those things where it's like if your competition now shifts from being about smaller sites that write about niche things to being these major news conglomerates, you know, and, and, you know, with the growth and, and the, the juggernaut that is the Huffington Post. But if, like, your competition shifts from being, you know, um, a blog to being ABC, well, then we have to step up our game, too. And we can't just continue to write about the same small subset of topics because other people are coming after our, our you know, are stepping into our sandbox. And so if every story is going to have kind of these components, then we need to make sure that we're still doing... Um, our job of, of finding stuff the fastest, but also speaking to a specific audience and in a specific voice um, that maybe those other places can't um, or, or with as much authority. And I think that that's probably the you know advantage of having a relatively young staff um, and people who are, are digital natives is that yeah. you know we we know what these things are firsthand because we use them. Um, and I think that's why a lot of people came to Mashable originally was because it was kind of you know okay, real people are using this stuff and they're able to tell you how to do it and, and why it matters or why it doesn't, um, rather than just, you know, hey, you know, a, a, a kind of a standard news report about something that's happening. Um, but, I mean, it, it, there, there are good and bad elements of how these shifts happen, but I think it's just kind of representative that as a culture, you know, technology news is, you know, for a long time people try to kind of give it its own sort of little vertical or give it its own uh, kind of section, but it's 
it's it's just it's inserted itself into every aspect of our culture and and into every aspect of every news story. There's always a social and a digital component now. There's no way you can separate it. And so, at that point, it becomes as a news organization, you know, if you want to grow and you want to expand your reach, that means you can start writing about more things. Um, and you know, we can at Mashable, you know, we we've gotten into U.S. and world topics and and writing more about you know kind of uh, government and politics and and we've you know doing more viral content like BuzzFeed does, and that's something we've always done, but now we have a different place and channel for it, and, and our site layout is conducive to the fact that, you know, the entire front page isn't dominated by that sort of stuff. But what's interesting is that uh, a lot of our focus for the site has kind of remained the same. It's We're still uh, very popular. Our technology and our, our business sections are and our social media sections are very, very popular with readers. I mean, we've been... The, the voted the or I guess awarded best business blog I think four years in a row at the Webbies and that's a testament to the incredible work not only by Todd Wasserman our business editor but but also that entire team but I also think it's representative of the fact that as a site and and as a voice you know we're kind of seen as the place you go if you want to get information about uh, you know digital marketing and and social and uh, anything from how big companies are, are using you know different services and, and different technologies in their campaigns, but also to hey, if I'm a small business owner, how do I use these things myself, and how can I use these things to my advantage, or should I? Um, and so it's it's been a really interesting transition because we become more broad as we've had more competition from you know uh, more traditional news sources, but we've still retained, I, I would like to think, um, a good grasp on, on the areas that kind of mean Mashable Mashable, which are, you know, just uh, business, social media, and tech. So I want to take a, another quick break um, to, to thank one of, to thank our second sponsor. And then I just have a couple of last things that I want to go through and just try and understand what a day, day in the life for Christina Warren looks like, because I can, I can only imagine how packed it must be. <laughs> Lots of email. That's actually one of the things that I want to talk about. Um, so I want to take a quick moment to thank Shutterstock.com. This is where you'll find over 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. You can start searching now at Shutterstock to find the perfect image for your website, ad, publication, or basically any other creative project. Shutterstock gives you a global image collection where you can find images from all across the world that will make your project shine. You can choose between image packs and monthly subscription packages. Whatever fits your needs, you never have to compromise, but if you just need one image for your blog or mock-up, you can do that too. Every time you visit Shutterstock, you'll find something new since they add over 10,000 new images every single day. And believe it or not, it's more affordable than you think. They don't charge you any extra for large files. You just download any image in any size and you pay just once. They don't nickel and dime you for high-resolution images. If you need them, just take them. You can curate and share your pictures via lightboxes, so as you're searching around, you can choose your favorite pictures or videos and add them to your own lightbox gallery as you search. And you can also use their awesome iPad application to do this as well. If you want to run an ad for print... For example, you will need something called an enhanced license acts, uh, enhanced license to do this, and they can give you access to those. If you just you can get an enhanced license for basically any image that they have, and you can just contact the team at Shutterstock, and they can help you with that. Shutterstock aren't just pictures and videos; they also have a huge library of vectors, icons, and infographic templates too. 
If you need any help at Shutterstock, you can get an account rep dedicated to you, or you can also take advantage of their 24-hour support that they run during the week. So go sign up for a free browse account now by going to Shutterstock.com. There's no credit card needed to do this. And when you find the images you like, you want to use the code CMD8, so CMD8, and you will get 30% off any package. So thank you to Shutterstock for their support of Command Space and all of 5x5. So, Christina, what is a typical day in the life for you like? Where do you start and, and sort of how does it go on from there? So I usually get at the office around 10 o'clock. Um, I should probably get in a little bit earlier, but frankly, 10 o'clock is about as early as I can manage to kind of get myself together. Uh, <laughs> unless I have an early morning, seriously, unless I have an early morning meeting um, or, or a TV appearance or something. And uh, then, you know, I kind of, you know, peruse the, the news of the day, although I try to keep an eye on that uh, throughout the day. And I usually have kind of a set plan of, of stories I want to write. Sometimes things come up uh, during the day itself. I used to do a lot more uh, breaking news and kind of, you know, daily news as it happens because I focus less on that. I don't have to be as concerned with that, but, you know, I have to kind of my schedule of things that I'm working on. And then it's just, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it is a lot of email. And if you've ever tried to email me, a lot of unanswered email because my email is a complete mess. It's my own fault that I kind of, I, I, short of committing email, you know, suicide a couple more times and, and declaring email bankruptcy, I, I kind of don't know what to do. Um, I'm usually on a number of phone calls during the day with different companies and, and uh, about different products or services. And if I'm doing a review that I'm focused on, both reviewing the product uh, and, in, you know, writing the, writing the review itself. Um, and, you know, like always trying to kind of monitor what's, what's happening um, in kind of the news space, you know, for, for any breaking news or anything that's big, as well as, you know, laughing on Twitter, uh, posting, you know, uh, playing, you know, posting some things to Facebook. I, I don't, um, I'm not as engaged with that during the day uh, because it's just too much of a time suck. Uh, Twitter's a really convenient place to do that. Twitter's actually a better way to reach me than, than email because I have too many email addresses and too many unread messages and too much of a terrible system set up. So if you really need to reach me, probably Twitter's the best way. But um, yeah, I mean, that's basically kind of it. I, I, I write a lot. Um, I don't publish stuff every single day, um, but I'm, you know, writing, um, you know, thousands of words every day. So. so how much of your day is taken up by, by putting, you know, your fingers to the keyboard? How, how much writing do you do every day? It really depends on, on the day itself. You know, like today I had a couple of meetings with, with some companies and had some other phone calls, but I've probably written, I'd say probably 2000 words today. Um, and I'm kind of working on some some bigger pieces uh, of some things to come out of some some uh, longer form stories. Um, so it really kind of depends. But I would say you know it could be anywhere from ninety percent of the day to you know thirty percent. It just depends. But I'm always thinking about stuff that I'm going to be writing, um, unless I'm doing some sort of interview um, or I'm moderating a panel or something like that. Uh, if I'm not writing, then I'm doing things that will eventually turn into stuff that I write. So you mentioned that you do uh, reviews of phones uh, quite a bit, but I assume that you also use like new tablets and new computers and stuff quite a lot to test out. Do these disrupt your workflows, like in the way that you work, or do you have they systems? They definitely. Yeah, yeah, how how does it how does that sort of how does that manifest for you? Yeah, no. So I mean, it depends on the product. So like, if I'm if I'm reviewing a Mac laptop, I, I don't do most of our PC laptops. Uh, Pete Patchell uh, does, fortunately, and I'm very happy for that because I don't want to deal with Windows um, unless I have to. <laughs> um, 
but that's just the truth. I mean, I'd rather not write about that stuff. I'd rather not review those things. We have someone else who is uh, much more willing to do that sort of stuff. But if I'm doing a, a Mac laptop review, for instance, I have to make sure, or, or an iMac or whatever it might be, I have my core apps that I have to make sure are installed, Dropbox, um, you know, 1Password, um, Fantastical, Keyboard Maestro, Text Expander, uh, TextMate, a few others. And um, I try to kind of get kind of that base cooperation set up as closely as possible. Um, get, get my, you know, bookmarks kind of linked over, that sort of a thing. Um, with phones, it's actually more difficult sometimes. Sometimes it's easier. With Android, it's getting easier because you can restore um, apps and kind of profiles more quickly. So you can kind of, it's easier to get started. With other devices, uh, some of the Windows phones, even though you can download, you can go back and download things you've already done, it's hard to kind of have a, an instant snapshot of, kind of pre-existing setup. Um, so that can be a little more complex. Uh, but yeah, you know, um, it depends on how I'm doing the review. You know, sometimes I do really in-depth reviews. Like I, when I reviewed the Lumia uh, 920, I actually locked my iPhone 5 up um, for the 10 days. I actually didn't have it at all. I mean, it was locked in my desk drawer and I forwarded my number and uh, told everyone who texts me, you know, that they had to, you know, send text my actual phone number and not use iMessage. And, and I use that as my sole phone uh, because I wanted to get the experience of, you know, what, what would it be like to, to fully switch? Usually when I do a phone review, I, I'm still, I've still got my main phone as well as, you know, the device that I'm reviewing. Um, and, and I try to use the review device as much as I can, but I usually still have my, my other device if I need to get things going on. Um, but yeah, I mean, that becomes, it be, but it becomes a real challenge. Uh, but I also think it ends up being a better review experience because you can actually say, well, this is what it was really like and how it really fit into, you know, my existing scenario. You know, you have to kind of account for the fact that not everyone's going to have things set up the way you do, of course, but, you know, it's a good way to kind of, um, dog food uh, a product. If it's an audio video product like like the TiVo or whatever, you know, then or a video game or, or something like that, then, you know, it's, it's a matter of spending um, hours with it and, and using it and, and going through the process just like if um, I were buying it for the first time. And, and I typically approach my reviews with the sorts of things like, okay, you know, um, what are the things I would want to know as a buyer and use it the way I, I would normally use anything that I buy and, and you know, for good or for bad. Um, I, I worked at Best Buy uh, when I was in high school and college, and um, it, in virtually every department. And, and I was, I was um, also uh, before they made it the Geek Squad. I was, I was one of their their techs, and so I, I have a lot of experience with consumer electronics, and I have a lot of you know kind of insight into how things work, um, and I have a very large consumer electronics collection. So I usually try to kind of approach. Um, step from the perspective of, okay, you know, if I were to evaluate this for myself, what would I do? But then also think about it, like, all right, if I, how could I recommend this to my mom? And, and would I be able to do tech support? Would tech support be required? Or is this something that she could intuitively, you know, use on her own? Um, so. So you are clearly as much as a geek as all of us is, is I think what we have established over the last <laughs> over the last 50 minutes I love that you locked your phone away yeah yeah I had to it, it was and it was honestly though but it was it was a great experiment and it was a question that a lot of people on Twitter had and I think that a number of other places kind of did something similar after uh, although I will point out proudly that I was the first um, kind of did similar experiments but I felt that with something like Windows Phone yeah 
um, eight being so different that it was really kind of a required thing because it's too easy to fall back on your default device. And so it was like, okay, if you really were going to switch, you're not going to still have your other phone around. You're probably either going to sell it or give it away or do something else, but you're not going to have both connected at the same time. So as a reviewer, it's not really fair when we review things if we've still kind of got that backup and that thing we're used to. Um, so kind of trying to go into it like, you know, if I was a regular person um, and, and not someone who has six phones on her desk as I do. Um, and in some cases, you know, I do really get to geek out. Like I'm, I'm reviewing a um, Synology NAS system right now, the, the 1813 plus, and it's really awesome. And I'm really geeking out about it. And it's going to be one of those posts that, you know, for a lot of Mashable readers, it's going to go way over their heads. Um, but I'm hoping it'll maybe attract a, a different audience to our site of people who can kind of read about uh, stuff, uh, who typically like that stuff might might come read it. Um, but it's also just, honestly, it was one of those products that I was, was really interested in, in testing out myself to see if I could deal with my own ridiculous media collection. Um, and that's honestly how a lot of, I think, some my, my best reviews start and it's my best kind of product experiment start is I, I have my own problem to solve. And I you know, want to seek out the best solution with the thought that, hey, if I'm having this problem, chances are somebody else probably is too. Um, and, you know, then write about um, how I solved it. Christina, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you so much. So why, why don't you tell people where can they go to, to keep in touch with what you're up to? Sure. You can view my work at, and if you just want to view my stories, mashable.com slash people slash Christina. You can also follow me on Twitter at film underscore girl. And I'm on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Christina.Warren, Google plus plus Christina Warren. Um, and uh, I have two not well-updated blogs, uh, ChristinaWarren.com, which I'm about to kind of turn into a main portal, and Christina.is, which I I need to write more on. And I'm also on app.net, although not as often as I should be, at Christina. Oh, you're just just Christina there. You went for the new name, not not the same as the Twitter name. I did because I was one of the early backers. You know, I paid like my 100 bucks a year or whatever, and I was one of those things. If I can get Christina registered someplace, I will. Um, if I could get Twitter at Christina, I totally would do that. Although at this point, from a brainy perspective, it's kind of weird because most people know me as film girl. So it's, it's kind of like a catch 22, um, either way. But, uh, yeah, um, the problem with film girl is that the underscore isn't available everywhere. So I'm either film girl, one word or film underscore girl. It's Mm. kind of a, if I could, if I could choose, if I could go back to 2007 when I thought Twitter was idiotic and, uh, rethink my username strategy, I probably would. Yeah. Same here. I think. But I mean, I would like to just be Mike. But the problem with those is when you get a name like that, you know, even Mike with a Y, you get a lot of people talking to you that don't actually mean to be talking to you. That's that's very true. That's very true. Yeah. Um, one of my colleagues is at Emily because she joined Twitter in like early 2007. And so she's at Emily. And I can't even imagine. I mean, the amount of people who try to hack into her account is a ridiculous. And the people who must, you know, talk with, to her unintentionally must be ridiculous too. So that's a really good point. I think having one of those common names is probably um, a gift and a curse. Well, again, thanks so much for joining me and thank you all for listening to this week's episode. We're back again next week. We're actually going to be joined by the Studio Neat guys next week, which is going to be awesome because they've just 
um, announced their recent Kickstarter today. So just in time to talk to them about that and all of the awesome stuff that they've done in the past. So that's going to be great. So until next time, thank you for listening. If you want to catch up with me online, I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. Um, I'm, I'm Mike pretty much everywhere. If you want to find the show notes for today's episode, go to 5x5.tv slash cmdspace slash 59. And again, I'll be back next week. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.